What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to another episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Today we are talking with Adam Wiener, vocalist, musician, and songwriter for the band Low Cut Connie. Now, during quarantine, Adam and Low Cut Connie have been live streaming a show called Tough Cookies. It's a combination of a talk show, concert series, and support group for people during the pandemic. And the show has been so successful and had so many cool performances that they are putting out an album of the cover songs that they performed during the broadcast called Tough Cookies, the best of the quarantine broadcasts. The album will arrive May 19th and is available to pre-order digitally and on CD and vinyl. Now, at Hardcore Humanism, our goal is to help you apply some of the core principles of humanistic psychology so that you can break through barriers, find your purpose in life, work hard to achieve it, and build a community around you who will support your best and most authentic life. And one of the biggest barriers that we face is finding a way to be authentic when there are so many pressures to be otherwise. In fact, a key aspect of humanistic psychotherapy is to provide people with the unconditional positive regard that they need in order to push back those pressures to allow people to understand who they really are and what they want to do in their life. Now, what Adam talks about is a very common and unfortunate dynamic that happens to many of us, particularly when we are younger. It feels as though the world is made up of cool kids and not so cool kids. And all of the attention and energy revolves around the cool kids. The cool kids get rewarded with popularity and the admiration of other kids, and maybe even teachers and parents. And there's a sense, either implicitly or possibly explicitly, that we should all try to be one of the cool kids, or at least participate in the admiration. And for many of us who aren't cool kids, what can happen is we start to try to change who we are just so we can fit in. And who knows, it may work, but at some point we lose ourselves and no longer lead an authentic life. But Adam's perspective is really interesting. He didn't fall prey to that urge. He was able to recognize that he didn't want to conform and fit in or be cool in that sense of the word. In fact, he gravitated towards people who he felt were marginalized and on the fringe. And as he got older, he was able to dig deeper into the ways that he felt uncool, disconnected, and marginalized. And not only was Adam able to express this in his art and performances, but also he found a community of more like-minded people who similarly rejected conventional notions of cool in favor of more individuality and authenticity. So let's hear what Adam has to say. All right, Adam, welcome to the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. I'm so happy to be here. I love things that are both human and hardcore. Well, this is awesome because we're about to get into a very hardcore topic. Uh, Your music has been described as music about the forgotten, which really spoke to me when I, when I heard that and I listening to you guys, I kind of, I definitely appreciated that perspective. And so I want to go right into that idea. Sure. How do you connect with the concept of either feeling forgotten or seeing people that that appear to be forgotten? And how does that play into your music? Sure. You know, I, ever since I was a kid, I just I'm always interested. My eye sort of dr- gravitates towards the people on the margins. Like, you know, when you're you're sitting in a public space and there's a security guard, my eye is on a security guard or the janitor or the maid, or the guy on the street asking for, you know, pennies, the person that, you know, pumps the gas in New Jersey for you, the person that checks you into the motel, the diner waitress, 
all these people that I encounter day to day throughout my life, I'm always just fascinated with how they live. And as I've grown as a writer, I've just noticed more and more that, especially in the music business, there's less and less writing and entertainment for people on the margins. Music is tends to be, you know, geared towards youth. It tends to be geared to people that are cool or want to feel cool. It tends to be glorifying celebrity culture and wealth. You know, it's just, it's just an extension of like corporate America in so many ways. And so over the years, I've just sort of more and more delved into writing and performing for people who I guess you could say are forgotten, ignored, invisible on the margins. And has that been something for you personally that, that you've gone through, or does that feel like something that you're more seeing when you're encountering other people? Well, I don't know about you, but I was never cool. I also never aspired to be cool. <laughs> you know, I never really like was ever doing the right thing for the moment to be in. I've never been on trend. I never will be. And so I don't know, from a young age, I always had this kind of deep feeling and sympathy for people that were in with the out crowd, as they say. <laughs> and when you go into it, when I would go into a classroom and all the kids would be sort of together and clicking together and there'd be that one lonely, quiet, weird kid in the corner, a boy or a girl or whatever. I would say that's going to be my friend. That's going to be the person I, I talk to. I think in my adult life, it hasn't changed really. And even though part of my job is being a party starter and being sort of the, the host of a big community, my, you know, my motivation is still always to try and go out there to people who are forgotten, ignored, or sort of living outside the mainstream and, and put my arms around them in some way. And it's such an interesting thing. The idea of, again, these cool kids, like, I feel like there were like seven cool kids in each school and everybody else was looking in on them feeling this way, but nobody knew that everybody else was feeling this way, you know? And there's that, that, that feeling of how it, it winds up reverberating in a life is that whatever it is that you're doing is not worth doing. That's, that's the feeling that it gives. Which is, which is such a powerful and destructive idea. It's like everything should be geared towards getting in with that, mm -hmm. conforming to that. Unless you realize, I think that's one of the reasons why people turn to music. Like until you realize like, hey, there's a path here that, that, is, that can be, like you say, for forgotten people. It's brutal. Yeah, I don't think it's a, a coincidence that some of the greatest artists, uh, musical artists, performers, I'm talking about Prince, James Brown, Bruce Springsteen, Patti Smith, Elvis. A lot of these were really introverted kids who were not popular when they were young, who were fairly awkward or ostracized. And uh, David Bowie, they, they flowered really late, you know, and they, they sort of became their true selves later. And I would put myself in that category. You know, certainly in middle school, I was certainly 
uh, in the bottom rung of the social spectrum of, of the school. Having a last name Wiener didn't help. Being into dance, I took dance classes and music and theater, and I wore weird clothes. Um, none of that helped. A very dear friend of mine, she and I started the first Gay Straight Alliance Club uh, in our in in Cherry Hill, where I grew up, which I believe was one of the first, if not the first, in in New Jersey. I was just always sort of like right on the fringe. Art was the thing, though, that brought me into the world. I made friends. I found a little community um, through music, through theater, through writing, through photography, and then. I, you know, I couldn't wait to get to New York and just like be an artist a hundred percent of the time. That was like all I wanted to do. Now, one of the things that, that happens for people is that now, you know, you guys have had, at least from an outside perspective, great success. There's a lot of validation that's occurred so that you can look back and say, all right, I made, I made some good choices here. But back then there was no way of knowing that this was going to work out. And you know, like you're talking about somebody like Prince, it's like, you know, before Prince was Prince, he was a marginalized kid, you know, and how do you at that moment, not knowing how it's going to turn out, actually then say, I'm going to keep going in this direction. Like I may have been forgotten, but I'm not going to forget myself because quite frankly, a lot of people do that and they, they drift into kind of an oblivion from mental health perspective, from a societal perspective. Sure. Well, one distinction between myself and all those great artists I just named is I sort of didn't make it. Uh, uh, a lot of those artists, whether it's Prince or Bowie or Elvis or Patti Smith uh, or Madonna, who, you know, reinvented themselves, you know, in their 20s or even in their teens, they became massively successful artists and lived in this art bubble. I still had a day job at the age of 35. Uh, low cut Connie didn't become my full time endeavor until age 35. So I had already lived a number of lives and I was balancing my art life with my day jobs, with my responsibilities and straddling a bunch of different worlds. And so not that I am. Uh, a hugely massive, I'm not a celebrity, but I'm successful enough in my art that I can make a living and do this full time. But I came to it, success came so late that I have this kind of different appreciation for it. And I now, like I never had that art bubble. And so I always had to put on a couple different masks throughout the day, if you know what I mean. Now that I can be me all the time, it feels good, but I also have a sympathy for people that can't be themselves all the time. That's sort of where the private lives concept came from, from my most recent album. There's a lot of people that can't live comfortably in their skin all the time, and they have to have public and private lives. They have to have you know, who they are with their family, on the street, their work, and, you know, uh, I have been fortunate that I can be myself for a living, but it, it's, it's, uh, I don't take it for granted. Let me put it that way. When you're talking about those different masks, like how would you describe the discrepancy between 
what you're saying now, this is me all the time versus how you had to be with family, how you had to be at work. Well, I get to be my full self for a living. By that, I mean, people always say to me, oh, you have a character. Lokat Kani is a character. It's not. It's actually when you take away layers, when you take away the expectations about how you're supposed to behave in polite society, in terms of gender, humor, uh, respectability, age, race, all these things, we tweak our behavior all the time. And of course, we need to do that in a society. But what I get to do for a living is I I get to take away those layers, all those ideas about how you're supposed to be. I get to shed them and actually be a more true, full version of myself on stage, on camera, in the recording studio, talking to people like I am with you. And so that took time, by the way, because it's it's a difficult thing to do. Um, but the fact that I can sort of be running around in my underwear, screaming my head off, hugging people for a living in front of everyone I know, it's no secret. <laughs> it took a long time to get to that place, but now I'm sort of enjoying doing it. Yeah, it's interesting that you're saying that because one of the quotes that you and I talked about right beforehand was that idea that you were going to go to New York and shed your skin like Patti Smith. But it's interesting the way that you just described it, because one of the things that I like about humanistic psychology is that the idea, at least in theory, is push away all of those variables, all of those pressures that get in the way of someone being their authentic self, you know, and that, that that's basically what the therapist's job is, is to basically say, okay, these are all the things that got in the way. Now let's mm-hmm. help pull it back. So in, in some ways, what you're talking about is almost less of a shedding of the skin and like, and just like, it's like removing all of the barriers in some ways, kind of asking that as much as, as stating it, does it feel like, hey, I'm, I finally just got all these different things that were in my way and now I can be me. Yeah. And isn't it really adolescence where it feels like the walls come up or the, you know, these barriers come in? One of the many jobs I had for years as I was teaching and I, I taught many things, but music was one of them, writing and music. And I would always marvel at how fearless when I would teach somebody who was age 10 or 11 uh, who wanted to be in a rock and roll band or write or do something with the arts at age 10 or 11, they're so fearless. They just go for it. <laughs> it's so pure. And then I was always noticing how the 13, 14, 15 year old kids, they're so self-conscious about everything. And it takes like so long to find your voice again, your child voice again. We are so, we become so conscious of those expectations of who we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to act because of where we live, because of, you know, our color, our, our, our perceived gender or sexuality, our social status, our class, those things become really like apparent. And then there's this undoing. It certainly was for me. Patty Smith is a hero of mine because she's, she grew up 
very close to where I did in South Jersey and in Philadelphia. She lived in a couple different places, Philadelphia and Blackwood, New Jersey, where she was living, I think, in her teen years. Um, I used to work at the mall down the street. And to think that I worked in the Deptford Mall and it was just like two minutes away from Patty Smith was a teenager where she where this just unbelievable creative artist was just about to take flight. That was really inspiring to me because looking around at the mall and the suburbs and the people around there, good people, nice place, but it felt very oppressive to me and my spirit. And I and just knowing that somebody had come from that environment and turned into this great performer was was inspiring to me. And how do you during that time? Because there's a lot of people, I would include myself in there that at different points, like I actually just started playing music for the first time in my 30s, if you want to call it that. I'll say screaming into a microphone. But like, you know, going about your life and then you get on stage every once in a while. There's always that that sort of feeling, you know, for me, it was it was never something I thought to myself, okay, this is gonna take me away from the life that I had. I was always just very excited to have it as kind of like this really fun extension sure. of it. But for somebody like you who had that more, that, that deeper artistic yearning, and like you're saying, you're, 30, you're in your 30s, you're working as a teacher, how do you keep on it? Because the possibility of feeling like, I don't know, man. I, I was actually speaking the other day to my dear friend. There's a band called Tune Yards, maybe you've heard of. And she and I, she's a very successful musician. She tours the world. And she and I met long before we had any success. And the one thing that we, we recognized in each other is that neither of us would ever be happy if we weren't performing. And even though I, was, I, I had a lot of friends and were surrounded by a lot of people who were performers, artists, musicians, dancers, you know, they were in it for different things. And I think it's good if you can, if art can be a supplement and a release, you know, to your daily life. Uh, but for me, it was do or die. Like it had to be my primary existence. And I didn't care if it took 20 years or more, which it did to become that. It was like the grind was one in which I actually became a glutton for punishment in that I decided that I needed to perform for hostile audiences. It was like a penance, but also to learn, like you have to bomb 50 times before you hit once, right? And that, that's true for a comedian or a singer or a dancer or whatever. I got into this lifestyle that wasn't necessarily a healthy lifestyle, but it was one in which I just over and over and over between my day jobs, I would go and tour Europe, Canada, across the USA and perform in the shittiest, dingiest, craziest places, anywhere that would have me, a potluck dinner, an anarchist house, a gay bar, you know, an old age home. I just wanted to be eyeball to eyeball with a crowd and see if I could make them connect, if I could connect and make them feel what I wanted them to feel. And it took years all through my 20s of sort of half the time bombing and half the time connecting until 
around age 30, I simultaneously felt like, oh, maybe professionally it's not going to happen. But also, I feel like I'm pretty good at this now. (laughs) And of course, that's when it did start to happen professionally. See, my pr- I was ready at that point as an artist, as a performer. I had been in the oven long enough, ready with the confidence to get on stage and get on a microphone to just own the place and take any crowd wherever I wanted them to go. My pursuit, though, it was, it was really an artistic one. It wasn't really a, a financial or professional endeavor. I think I could have been happy if I got some sort of gig that I could do regularly, where it meant something to a lot of people, and it didn't pay anything. Money, just like it didn't matter. I would have just like kept sleeping on people's couches and scrounging together little pickup jobs. But I do think that because I had committed so fully to the art and the performance, it did connect with people and it did grow. I have a song on my Dirty Pictures Part 2 album, I have a song I wrote called Hollywood. And anybody's stuck in traffic in LA ever, which is all the time, there's there's just panhandlers, I guess you call them. And it's like a whole society, sub-society in, in Hollywood. And I just get stuck in traffic in LA when I'm there and I see these people and I'm like, what's their story? How did they end up? here. And so I wrote the song from the perspective of the person who spends their days around glamorous people uh, begging and playing guitar to try and make some tips. It was a break. That was sort of a breakthrough song for me because it's not always easy uh, or certainly wasn't easy for me always to write a character song where I step into somebody else's shoes completely because I've never been Knock on wood, I've never been homeless and uh, I haven't certainly, I haven't lived it, but that opened up some doors. And then after that, I felt like I was able to write more in the shoes of other people. And then I started writing a lot of songs from a female perspective, which I did so much less of when I was younger. I don't think I would have had the bravery to try, but then all these songs, Sharice, Beverly, Oh, Suzanne, Shake It Little Tina <laughs> started coming out. And um, maybe I will at some point just do an album of all my songs from a female perspective because it's what I enjoy writing the most. Tell me more about that. What about that perspective feels more appealing as an artist? Well, you know, it's so much clearer to me now than when I was younger that our our whole entertainment spectrum, certainly from the past, is so male-dominated. Even for women performers and writers, it's like funneled through, you know, like a processing through the industry of how it's supposed to land to appeal to men. And I wasn't as aware of that as I am now. I feel like I've worked on to try to expand my understanding of that. But now I really see it. And as unfortunate as that is, it's also exciting because now we get to go through this process artistically as a society of expanding, you know, in terms of gender and race. And so there's so much to write about. When I talk to young people, 
and they say, I don't know what to write about. I say, there's just look around you. I mean, just look at society, look at how people live. And there's just so much there. Find a way to put it in, in songs or, or your work. And so one of my breakthrough songs was Beverly. That was the first song that really got played on, you know, like a hundred plus radio stations. And it was a song where I just tried to, you know, even though I'm writing in my voice and singing with my voice, I tried to just in a sort of vibe in the spirit of it, understand better how this woman is living that I'm, that I'm singing about. You try to not make her just the object of the song. It's so amazing and wonderful that now there's so many different paths you could take that are, are more accepted. I wouldn't say that they're fully accepted, but at least there's like some acceptance out there, you know, for these different paths. You know, we're not quite at the point yet, though, where we've seen, you know, as an example, like you know, seeing the the Rolling Stones or Bruce Springsteen or Neil Young is like, oh, these are these are guys in their their seventies and their whatever, and they led a rock star life. And hey, you could have a rock star life all the way until you're older. Now it's known that that's possible, right? And I feel like that we're still not at that point where a lot of these different approaches to life are are they're they're acknowledged, but they're not fully accepted yet. And I think that that's what's making a lot of people uncomfortable. But I'm I'm looking forward to seeing as more and more time goes by and more and more of these paths are acknowledged. They're going to be like, hey, you could do X and it's going to be okay. You could do Y and it's going to be okay. You could do Z. You don't just have to do A, B, and C. And that's going to, and I think we're getting there, but, but I think it's making people tense because it's like, you know, what do you do with all these different people? But it's just, it's, it's just an amazing time, but I'm really looking forward to the to the time where we get over that. I mean, if we ever get over that and it's really like, Hey, you could, you could really do whatever you want and it's going to be okay. I'm a realist about these things. And I think there's always going to be that tension in terms of we're always simultaneously getting more liberated and more uptight. And that's not just America, by the way, like we have distinct issues with that tension and they're bubbling over right now. But that's been true throughout humankind. Things progress and things regress. Things are opening and closing at the same time. And I read literature and poetry from the Roman times. And I'm shocked because I'm like, we've been through this before. In terms of politics, gender, sexuality, class. It's like we've been through a lot of this. There was some interesting art made from it. And there are just certain things that will always be true. And, and that conflict will, I think, always be part of our existence. Uh, listen, I didn't expect to be talking about all these fantastic topics. We could probably talk for five more hours and keep, yeah. keep delving. We'll do it again. But listen, just keep up the good work that you're doing. Hardcore humanism. I love it. I'm so happy to be part of it. I appreciate it, Bobet. Best of luck with everything. So there you have it. Adam Weiner of Low Cut Connie talking about how he was able to resist the traditional pressures that many of us face to change who we are and to conform to the values of others. 
And Adam described how he was able to channel this process of slowly peeling back the layers that society often puts on us to find his own authentic self and express that authenticity in his music and in his community. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear in the podcast, go to our website and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time.